Welcome to episode two of the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. I mentioned in the introduction to the last episode that our aim is to speak with experts in the field of golf, and they don't come much bigger and more omnipresent than Mike Clayton. If you've ever heard Clayton on a podcast, he really is only clearing his throat for the first hour. Clayton has been there and done that. A high-level amateur, where he secured international representation honours for his beloved Australia, led to a successful professional career on the Australian, European and Asian tours. Onwards to writing, course designing, commentating, mentoring, caddying and serial podcasting. Mike and some of the collaborators, such as Rod Murray, Adrian Logue, Jeff Shackelford and John Hogan, kept many of us company on long COVID-19 induced walks. We were very grateful for their company then and number just changed. In all honesty, Mike is somewhat responsible for my presence at this mic right now and as a result I cannot think of anyone else more fitting to be talking to. Today we will initially explore the Seven Mile Beach project with Mike and its similarities with Byron Bugle. We'll also look at his beginnings in golf, Alistair McKenzie and the Melbourne Sandbelt, technology, does the drinking game apply here? Who knows? First steps in design, trees and mowing lines, European tour memories, renovation, the Sandbelt Invitational, plus a few more reading recommendations. I am immensely pleased to introduce Mr. Michael Clayton for your enjoyment and delectation. Hi, Mike. Shane, how it's evening, I guess, here, so it's morning where you are i assume it certainly is it's 10 a.m in the morning so uh, bright Very and early good. and uh thanks for joining us you join us from hobart where you're currently casting your eye over a sandy side 10 minutes from the airport that i have heard you refer to as pine valley by the sea i've seen some pics of the site on twitter over the past few weeks the word exceptional comes to mind it just looks like the place you would want to build a, build a golf course what uh, what can you tell us about it well it's a piece of land by Hobart Airport that Matt Goggin it was um, Matt Goggin played with Tom Watson in the last round of the Open at Turnbury in 2009 was it? The Stuart Sink Open. Yeah so Matt played with Tom Watson that fateful day. Uh, He told me about this piece of land 25 years ago. He says a great bit of land in Hobart. I'm going to build a golf course on it one day so um Took him a long time to get there, but we got there. It's a it's a spit of land going out into the sea, um, just sand dunes on the ocean, and as much land as you want really to build it. So uh, it's it's a phenomenal site, really. So uh, Mike Devries is down here. We're doing it together, and if we don't mess it up, it's going to be pretty good. So that, that's the plan: is not to mess it up. Sounds pretty similar to the uh, the brief that Richard Stotler gave you with regard to Barnbogle. It was. Yeah, we did Barnbogle with Tom Doak, and he said, and, you know, most clients are pretty involved in the sort of golf course they want, and they've, you know, they, they're, they're pretty keen to have the hardest course in the world or the easiest course in the world or the, I want a top... 100 course, whatever. Richard knew nothing about golf, didn't play golf, knew nothing about golf. 
and we were sort of just talking about the golf course with him and what sort of golf course he wanted. And he said, I don't care what you guys do, just don't screw it up. So that, that was the that was the perfect brief, really. Yeah, I was so, very fortunate to... Sorry, beg your pardon. Go on. No, you go. I was very fortunate to get down to uh, Barnburgle before uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic hit. And uh, I must say, big time kudos to yourself and Richard and Tom and the team down there. You really could put that golf course anywhere in Ireland or the UK and it would stand muster to anything. Yeah, I worked it out really well. It was a great piece of land, great client. I mean, Tom's obviously one of the best architects in the world and you know, I think we did a pretty good job. You know, and and the test of any course really is is do people want to go and play it? Is it a successful business? And Richard was or is you know, great at running a business. He he's got terrific accommodation. The food's fantastic. It's a great experience to go to Bamboogle. So, you know, people from all over the world come down there. I think before the pandemic he had a year where he had more players from overseas than he did from Tasmania, which is kind of pretty amazing. So it's um but his biggest clientele really is from Melbourne and Sydney. You know, return visitors who love their time down there who jump on a plane. It's an hour's flight from Melbourne or Sydney and they drive out there and stay there for a weekend or they play during the week. And you know, it's a windy site. You know, it's, it's like Cape Wickham, which is, of course, Mike DeVries did on King Island in Bass Strait between Victoria and Tasmania. And it can blow you know, hard. But people kind of forget that it blows hard at Dornock and Port Marnock and Cypress Point. And, and part of golf by the sea is, yeah, it blows hard sometimes. Deal with it. So it's, um, but the good thing for, you know, from our point of view with what Richard did at Bamboogle was that it, he knew nothing about golf. He put a lot of trust in us and Mike Kaiser, who from Bandon Dunes, who told Richard that if you build this course, it's going to work. You know, Richard knew nothing. He knew nothing about golf. He knew a lot about business and how to run successful hotels, which was the business he was in before he bought the farm at Bamboogle. So, you know, we could have been the greatest conman in the world, but the great thing about Bamboogle is that it's been successful and it makes money and people love it. And for the first time ever, unlike in Ireland or England or Scotland or America, for the first time ever, Australian golfers can play a top 100 course in the world without having to be a member at Royal Melbourne or Kingston Heath or New South Wales or Royal Adelaide or wherever. You know, it's, it's a public golf course. It's 100, well, it's 120 Australian dollars. So what's that, 60 pounds around, whatever, something like that. So it's in, in world terms, it's incredibly cheap and it's fantastic. So that, that was the great thing Richard did for golf in Australia was give every golfer in Australia a chance to play a World Top 100 course. You could make the argument that it's possibly one of the best value 18 hole rounds you'll ever play. Why? Wow. You know, we think it's amazing how much you guys pay over there for golf. I mean, well, the overseas rates at, I don't know, what, what does it cost to play at King's Barnes or... Um, I think the... The, the old course, in, as an example, this year has gone up to £270, I believe. 
Yeah, the old course is 270 pounds. Wow. So, um, you know, Barn Burgle at 120 Australian dollars is 60 or 70 pounds is pretty good value in world terms. That's rip your rip your arm off stuff. Yeah. And I think someone worked out that if you lived in Los Angeles and you wanted to play golf for a week, it was cheaper to go to Barn Burgle than it was to go to Bandon Dunes. That's amazing. Yeah, in terms of accommodation, cost for golf, you know, it was it was just cheaper to jump on a plane and fly to Australia than it was to jump on a plane and fly six south north to Bandon in, in Oregon. Well, I, I know I was down with a mate in uh, Barn Burgle, um, who had it had been 40, 40 some years since he'd actually darkened the door of Tasmania, and this guy is a big time links junkie. Hello to AT if he's listening. And he would, I guess, travel quite widely with his job. He's uh, he works for a winery in the Barossa, and yeah. he promised me faithfully after we made a very quick stop to Barnbogle and played uh, the Dunes and Lost Farm that it would not be forty three years until he made it back down. He's not made it back down yet, but I'm, I'm sure it's on the itinerary somehow. I know, I know, with COVID nineteen, you've had it quite hard in terms of interstate travel. Well, Tasmania was shut down for a long time and we still can't go to Perth. We've got a job in Perth and we're still not allowed into Perth, which is kind of weird, but um, can't stay locked down forever. No, at, at least Hannah Green made it out to do the shoey and win the uh, the Vic Open there at the weekend. She I know did. you were caddying she... for, uh, you were caddying for Luca, uh, for, sorry, Elvis. Uh, Elvis. Yeah, I was going for Elvis, but, um, and Hannah's leading this week. They're playing at Cobram Baruga, which is a, Course on the New South Wales uh, Victorian border. I see she shot sixty four today, so she's leading there as well. She's a fantastic player. I mean, she was a she's really good. I heard she was six under through seven at one stage yesterday. Uh, well, well, good for her. And the and the only reason she's playing is because her boyfriend, uh, Jared Felton's from Perth, and you know he's a young player here who's like everyone, every other Australian pro. It's been starved for tournament golf for two years. So Jared's up there playing. So she figured she might as well go up and play as well. So good for her. She's got 64. I mean, she's terrific. She's a great ambassador for Australian golf. Fair choice to her. Maybe oh. if we could circle circle back to Seven Mile Beach for a second, Mike. I know uh, there was quite a few radiata pines that needed to be cleared. How long did it take you guys to get your conceptual routing map and ideas in place initially? Why? Well, project's been 10 years in the making but uh, with my new partnership with Mike DeVries, Mike came out just before COVID in February 2020 and we walked the site and came up with a quite a different routing from the original one we had so um, it's, it's obviously it's been two years since then to you know to really get it going but you know, and Matt told me about this thing 25 years ago. We, I first went down there 10 years ago. Uh, Mike and I finalised the routing that we're going to build two years ago and we've really started in the last... Um, he got here just before Christmas. So, we've, you know, we've been going since... I mean, nothing happens in Australia in... I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but nothing happens in Australia in January. Everyone just goes to the beach. So we sort of got going at the end of January and we're... Whatever, you know, we're five or six weeks into it. You got to bear in mind that mid mid January over here is the middle of winter, so we're, we're all sort of stuck inside. 
Yeah. In terms of obviously getting boots in the ground and, and starting the uh, starting the process uh, post tree clearing, has much changed in terms of editing and sort of changing your your ideas since you got on the ground and since Mike got there with with Lucas and and the bulldozer came in. Well, did we? I mean, obviously the only time we'd ever seen the site was when it was covered in trees. So once they took the trees down, we uh, we changed the fourth hole a lot. Well, not a lot. We had the same tee. We, you know, we moved the green 70 yards left to where we had it just because when the tree's gone, it looked so much better from where it was. So we changed the, the fourth, which meant we changed the fifth and lengthened the fifth, which was a good thing because the fifth and the tenth were kind of two quite similar holes playing from the high ground down towards the beach. So putting sort of 80 metres on the fifth hole made that quite a bit different. Uh, we moved the 13th green, which moved the 14th tee. Uh, we were undecided about whether 15 or 16 would be the par 5. So we sorted that out, made the 15th of 5 and 16th of 4. And we moved the 18th green 60 yards to the right. So, yeah, you know, you're always thinking about what you're going to do. In fact, when we one of the holes we've roughed in so far is the second hole, and it's a skyline green, playing uphill a little, really difficult, 165-yard shot, 170-yard shot. And we kept walking to the right, and we I think we want to keep the back tee because it's a, it's a really difficult, cool shot to hit. But the further right we kept walking, the hole got shorter. But Mike had roughed the green in and it looks fantastic from 120 yards. So we're going to kind of play this hole from 170 to 120. From 170 to the left tee, all you see is a skyline green You just and the clouds. But you sling around 70 yards to the right and you can see the water behind the green and the island behind the green and so it's kind of a completely different hole from the right. But again, it's a great example of if you're on the ground every day, you're always seeing things that are going to make holes better. So that's you know, really our job is to, how do we make our original concept better than it was? You just keep looking at chances to tweak and keep tweaking until it's really as good as it can be. You know, listen to you speak there. I'm minded to mention George Thomas and his theory of a course within a course. Is that something that you uh, you had in the back of your mind in terms of that particular hole when you when you walked around and you changed the, the yardage and maybe actually we, we play it as a longer one and a shorter one? Or uh, or am I getting the wrong end of the stick there? Yeah, not really. Uh, you know, in Australia we don't do lateral trees very tees very much or very well because we I mean, lots of the, most of our golf courses are in the suburbs and they're restrictive. I mean, Kingston Heath's a tremendous course, but it's on 125 acres and, you know, it's not uncommon in Australia to, to play. So we courses on small bits of land. So we didn't kind of go laterally sideways with tees to create different angles very much. But the site in Hobart, there's heaps of opportunity and space to do that. So we're doing that really. But I mean, Thomas's course within a course concept was the second hole playing as a part three, sorry, part four and a part five. The seventh hole playing as a three, a three and a short four. 
11th hole, same thing. There was a really cool right-hand pin at the 5th at LA Country Club where, I mean, Jeff Shuckleford told me, we could never figure out why he built this crazy wing on this green on a 480-yard hole that no one could ever possibly hit a shot into it. And then we found out there was a tee that had been overgrown in the, grown over by trees, that it was, it was 350 yards from the, from the green. So when you played the 350-yard tee, then you played to this really cool pin in, in the front right corner just over the bunker. But when you played the 480-yard hole, you never put the pin there. So, so Thomas was creating what was a really flexible golf course that wasn't just back tees to the, to the green and you know different paths for different holes. And so he was creating variety and interest and, and, and strategy that it changed depending on the course you were playing that day. So there's the, the sixth hole at, at uh, Seven Mile Beach. Is a, there's a chance to put a back tee in and play it as a 520-yard par five or play it as a 470-yard par four. So we'll probably do both. Cool. Play off the back tee, it's a par five. Play off the front tee, it's a par four. One last question on Seven Mile Beach, if you don't mind. Can you tell us about a, a hole or two that you're particularly excited about? That's yeah. Um, all of them would be a bad answer. Uh, we've roughed in a, a few. The thirteenth a terrific, drivable par four, but there's you know there's literally a five yard slot that you've got to drive in to get on the green. So that's a really cool hole. The the seconds it has a you know it's this from the back tier to skyline green. Just the scariest looking uphill 165 yard shot I've ever seen on a golf course. But as you creep the tee around and get it to 120 yards, then you can see the water behind and it's, it's, it's a cool shot. The thirds are you know, crazy rolling, dynamic par five that we really, we were burning it last night to get rid of the logs off the fairway. But um, it's got a chance to be a great par five. Um, you know, every hole is kind of exciting, but it tends to grow a little short par four. So it's, you know, it's one of those courses that's got a chance that if we don't mess it up, then I think we can make every hole is going to be a great hole, which is really unusual to do. But it's such a great site that you know, if you come up with a good routing, every hole should be brilliant because it's such a, it's, it's such phenomenal land. So, you know, if we do our job well, it's, it's going to be really good. And I've heard Matt speak, and indeed your good self, that uh, you're hopeful of a soft opening maybe next year. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Matt was down here last week. We did a TV interview, and he said somewhere between the 1st of January and the 31st of December. So, yeah, look, it's probably going to be the middle of next year, I think, but all, all things going well. Yeah, I mean, cool. so, you know, it's always, always at the whim of the weather and circumstance and whatever happens. But, I mean, Mike's got a, got a six-month visa, so he's got a... When he was building Cape Wickham, he went to New Zealand for a couple of weeks and came back in. So COVID's kind of made that a little trickier, but, you know, you know, there's probably a year's work for him here. So he'll have to kind of duck out of the country at some point for a few weeks and come back in. And So, there, you know, there are always curveballs like that that make the, the opening day somewhat dependent on how you manage that stuff. Well, I'm, I'm hopeful of getting down to your... Uh 
beautiful country uh, sometime soon. It may appear that a visit to Seven Mile Beach may have to wait until the, until the, the next, the, yeah, the, the yeah, following well, journey. Yeah, well, leave it to the middle of next year and you can, we'll, we'll go, go and have a slap. Exactly. Anyway, look, just moving on, maybe um, just with regard to there's been a significant amount of golf development in Australia over the past few years, I guess, starting with the redesign involvement, the redesign involvement of Peninsula Kingswood in Victoria. The Sharks obviously developed a Cathedral Lodge in north, north of Melbourne. Yeah. Obviously, Mike DeVries' design routing of Cape Wickham, newly renovated courses at Lonsdale Links and Sandy Links in Victoria and indeed Bonnie Dune in Sydney. Completed restorations at Yarra Yarra and proposed renovations at Royal Sydney and, and Royal Perth. Planned new courses at Armand in Tasmania. And yet more talk of Kangaroo Island and Nora Crina. Not to mention Tom Doak's involvement through the Gunamata course at the National. His continuing involvement at RM and Commonwealth in Victoria. Royal Adelaide in South Australia and Concord in New South Wales and Sydney. What's going on, Mike? Australia's splurging on golf. What's your take on this? Uh, it's interesting. You know, it was um, partly it's a bit of keeping up with the Joneses and trying to maintain your place in the rankings. Partly it's trying to make better golf. Partly it's clubs have got, they, they tend to spend more money on their golf courses than they do in England, in my experience, or, or in Britain. It started with Kingston Heath, really, in 1983. A guy called Graham Grant was a young superintendent up the road at, uh, Kingswood, which is now part of Peninsula Kingswood. The, go- the golf course is no longer there. But Graham did a phenomenal job at Kingswood and they poached him to come to work at Kingston Heath. And he did an amazing job at restoring the, the bunkers that had been filled in or covered over in trees or whatever. So he chopped a lot of trees down. He restored a lot of bunkers. He regrassed the golf course, he rebuilt all the tees, he rebuilt a couple of greens. And there were a lot of tournaments at Kingsneath in the 80s. And Greg Norman would come down and Feldo came down, Sam Torrance, uh, um, David Graham, and everyone raved about the golf course. So whilst what he was doing was controversial at the time, you know, the, the, the support he got from the pros and how well the course was turned out every year when, when we played there. That uh, you know, whilst it was controversial in the early eighties, by the time we you know, we moved into the nineties, it was pretty much universally accepted that Kingsnet was the second best golf course in, in in the country behind Royal Melbourne. And when John Sloan, Bruce Grant, and I started our business in nineteen ninety five, our first job was at Victoria. I remember walking into the our first committee meeting. I, I came back from the European tour in August to go to the meeting, and there was an old black and white photo of the golf course in 1930 in the downstairs bar. And we dragged the photo off the wall and took it upstairs and said, "You know, this is a pretty great photo here of how the golf course was." I think that the club that's managed itself the best in the last 15 years in Australia is been Kingston Heath, at which point one of the committee members interrupted me and said, well, I think they've ruined that golf course. Well, that was a good start. So anyway, we sold them on the idea of putting the, putting the black and white photo back, taking it back to what it was in 1930, which largely meant restore, restoring the bunkering, 
some of them had been, most, lots of them had been rounded off and made smaller. A bunch of them had been filled in and taken the trees out, which is what Kingston had exactly what Kingston had done. And we, we finished up rebuilding the greens as the last part of the project in 2019. So we went from 1995 to 2019 and pretty much put the golf course back the way it was in 1930. So, so that's one example of a club that, you know, Kingston Heath led Victoria and showed Victoria what to do. And Victoria did it. And, and it's, you know, Victoria had left its course alone in its, its 1994 course alone. It, there's not a chance it would have been be in the top 20 in Australia right now. And it's still in the top 10. So the rankings are kind of as unimportant as they are or, or should be. They're actually really important and Australian clubs take them seriously. And, you know, so uh, the success of Victoria led us to redo Karen up in the lakes and Royal Queensland basically build a new golf course. So, you know, th th there's been a lot of that work going on in Australia in, in the last 20 years. And partly it's keeping up with the Joneses, partly it's trying to stay relevant in the rankings, and partly it's just there being more discussion about golf course architecture and how do we make this golf course better. I played with John Huggin. Huggy and I played with the captain at the Lakes maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago. When did we start the Lakes? It, was, it might have been 2006. So way more, way more than 10 years ago. We got to the fourth or fifth hole and Huggy turned to me and said, this course is awful. And I said, yeah, I know it is. But of course it was a, you know, a stellar reputation in Sydney because Sydney's very short of great golf. And, but we essentially blew the golf course up and, re, and rebuilt it. And it's a, it's a terrific golf course now. But it, 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 it just deteriorated to the point where you know, it was an okay golf course. But if you put it in England which is you know, one of my favourite places to play golf in the world. It wasn't a chance it would be in the top 80 courses in England. But it was still in the top 20 or 25 in Australia because British golf and UK golf is, is the standard so much. You know, there's so much more depth over there than we have here. It, just to your point about, I guess, more discussion in Australia, certainly in terms of some of the circles I've, I, I'm mates with, shall we say, I always get the feeling that perhaps it's arguable that the uh, golfing IQ of the standard member in Australia might be slightly higher than um, than those in Ireland. It's not meant, or, and the UK, it's not meant as a as a criticism. It's just an observation. Where do you think the greater discussion and what prompts that? I don't know. If that's true. It's funny we were talking about it today. I was with Lucas Michelle, who's Lucas won the US Mid Amateur uh, 2019. So he played at Augusta in 2020 in the US Open. He's down in a bulldozer shaping stuff and pushing sand out of the road for, for, for six months down here. And we're both members at Metropolitan, which is one of the more famous clubs in Melbourne. And my question to him was, so how many members at Metro do you think really are interested in golf or care about golf? And we both thought maybe 5%. You know, how many members at most clubs are interested in 
golf course architecture, the equipment debate, the Saudi tour, um, you know, think of all the things that, you know, the, the history of golf. How many have read, you know, books about Hogan and Sneed? How many people actually care about golf? And I don't think it's that many in Australia. I, I think it's probably, you know, it's probably the same all over the world. There are, there are geeks like us who love all that stuff, but the average person who plays golf is interested in their own game and the social atmosphere at the club and if, if the beer's cold and, uh, and the greens are in decent shape, they're pretty happy. They don't really have that much interest in golf. And I don't think Australia's, the typical Australian golfer is any more interested in golf than a typical Irish member or English member or American member. Or, you know, we kind of live in this kind of little world where we're reading Eamon Lynch on the Saudi tour and John Huggan on Nicholson's Obnoxious Greed and we're reading Golf Club Atlas and Jeff Shuckover.com and, you know, we're desperate to go and play at Bannon Dunes or Sunningdale or Swinley Forest or Royal Dornock or Port Marnock or Royal Melbourne. And, you know, you know, if you're Irish, you want to come and play at Bumbergle Dunes or... So, I just, but I just don't think there are that many people who are that interested in golf outside of how it affects their own, uh, you know, how they embrace the game and feel about the game. And I think a lot of people play golf because... They like going to the club, meeting their friends, drinking beer after the game and, and playing competition golf. But I don't get a sense that they're that interested in the, 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 the greater world of golf outside of that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. I guess maybe we're stuck in our own little echo chamber uh, on Twitter and socials and podcasts, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it just amazes me that, you know, I, I, people tell me, you know, we were at the Vic Open last week and, you know, the old guy, oh, it's a shame there's no golf in the newspaper. Well, it kind of is a shame there's no golf in the newspaper, but newspapers are largely irrelevant now, aren't they? I mean, I, don't, I mean, kids don't read newspapers. They don't buy them or read them. They might read them online, maybe. But if you're into golf, you, know, you can read Eamon Lynch and John Huggan on Twitter. You can read Dan Rappaport's article on Morgan Hoffman last week. Who's, you know, it was a great story on a guy who, you know, he's off the US tour because he's injured and can't play anymore and he's gone down to Costa Rica to kind of get his life back. And, you know, if you're not going to find that in, in the in the age or the times or any mainstream newspaper. You're, never, you're not finding that story. But if you're on Twitter, you can find all that stuff. So we've never had more access to great golf writing or more, more access to more interesting opinions than, you know, you can read Alan Shipnuck and you can Lawrence Donegan and, John Huggan and you know, Eamon Lynch and the there are stuff you never had any access to 30 years ago. So people that lament, well, there's no golf in the newspaper. Well, there's no golf in the newspaper. No, because the game's passed that by. But there's so much more access to interesting content if you know where to look. But if you don't know where to look, then you're never going to find it. But, I mean, Twitter's an amazing resource for, you know, golf and, and, and what's going on in the world of golf. I guess going back to uh, one of your heroes, uh, Mr. Five Times, Peter Thompson. Uh, if I'm getting this right, Peter used to go and win the British Open, then go to the press tent and tap out an article on his uh, typewriter. I guess you were perhaps uh, inspired to follow in his footsteps. How did you get get writing on golf? Well, it's a funny story. Um, 
Graham Perkin was the great editor of The Age in Melbourne. Uh, the, the, the biggest journalism award in Australia is called the Graham Perkin Award. And he died suddenly. I mean, he, he was the guy who got Peter Thompson into golf riding. Peter was obviously a great player. They were friends. He gave him space in the paper to write, so Peter, Peter wrote. Graham died suddenly. I, know, I, I never knew him, but I know his daughter and his son really well. Graham died in the early 70s, maybe, quite young, 48 years old. And Steve, his son, was the editor of The Sunday Age. And I knew Steve, and he was a member of Victoria, and I, we, I, we had mutual friends, and we were playing a tournament at Royal Melbourne, and he said, why don't you write a column for the paper? And I said, well, you know, I've never written any golf. And he said, well, just go and write something and send it to me. So I got a pen and a bit of paper out, and I hand-wrote it, and I handed it over, and he printed it in the paper the next day, and it was kind of okay. And he said, look, any time you want to write, just write and send it to me. So I would, for years I faxed it until I you know, got a computer and started being able to send stuff on a, on a computer. But So I wrote golf for 25 years for the age, really. But all I was doing was copying what Peter Thompson did. And Peter was, Peter was brilliant. I mean, he used that column in the age to, you know, he was, it was opinionated, he was brave, he, you know, he, he wrote, Tremendous columns on golf, and you know the, 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 there was no cow so sacred that he wouldn't slaughter it. And, and uh, you know, and and fifty years later, he spoke about the demeaning nature of appearance money, and he, and he railed against it. And whilst it was a, it was always going to be a reality of life in Australia that if you wanted the big stars to come down, you had to pay them. But. He would look at this Saudi league now and just really in horror at what were the numbers last week? You know, somewhere between twenty and seventy million dollars in appearance money. You know, he would say, "I told you, go read what I wrote fifty years ago. What I said about this stuff. It was inevitable it would corrupt the game and destroy it, and 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 that's where we are right now. You know, so you know, I mean, there were many times I read what Peter wrote and thought." What an idiot! That you know, that, that's wrong. That's wrong. There's barely a column that you know. I was the one who figured it. I was almost. I was wrong in almost every instance. And when I was 18, I'd read it. You know, I'd read. Well, that's rubbish. You know, 40 years later, he was right about that. He was always. He was. He wasn't always right, but he pretty much always was. You know, he you was know, a wise he, old man. He was. He was definitely a man that lived the growing the game mantra properly. Um, wow. I've heard you. I've heard you speak yeah. um, previously about uh, uh, turning down appearances at the Masters to go and play for the Indi- play the Indian Open, and in many in ma- in many ways, obviously he's he's one of the main guys responsible for the Asian tour that we ha- we now have. Well, he um, and the Japanese tour. He was. He understood that. 60 jobs in America when, when it was top 60. That wasn't enough to sustain professional golf. And he understood that Asia was a great market, Japan was a great market, and pretty much his whole career in Britain, he was the best player over there. He and Bobby Locke were the best two players over there until Tony Jacklin turned up. So you know, he played around the world. And he, he spoke about a true world tour but he didn't take a diamond appearance money and he 
promoted the game around the world. And he was the, he would go and play the, he played the Indian Open opposite the US Masters when he was in the US Masters. And that's growing the game. And he would play in Asia, he would play in Japan, he would play in England, he would play in Australia. And he was he was the big star every week he played. But the, one of the first tournaments I went to, even before I played golf, my father took me to Metropolitan and he said, well, watch Peter Thompson, he's the best player here. I mean, I, mean, I didn't have a clue what I was watching, but I was watching as a 10 or 11-year-old Peter Thompson play golf and I, I understood on some level that he was a great player. He, you know, he was with Ken Rosewell or Lou Hode or one of the you know, one of the great Australian sportsmen. So I loved watching him play because, like I said, I didn't know what I was watching, but I liked watching him because he was a famous player. So and and by osmosis, you understand that I didn't understand how great he was. I just knew he was a great player because he won the British Open and you know he was a. But um, you know, he was truly growing the game by never taking a dollar in appearance money and passing up the US Masters to go and play in the Indian Open and getting the Asian Tour going and, and supporting the Japanese Tour and making the Japanese Tour. You know, by 1990, the Japanese Tour was pretty much playing for the same money as the PGA Tour was in America. Well, it's not even close to that now, but the Japanese Tour in the late 80s was phenomenal how strong that tour was with Jumbo and Nakajima and Aoki and you know, Kurumoto and you know, there were some tremendous players up there. But I guess those guys didn't need to travel as a result with the uh, the, the riches at home being so uh, bountiful. Yeah, no, they made fortunes up there. Yeah, they were they were proper megastars in their own country. And the Japanese tour is a long way from now from I think, I mean I've played a Japanese tour around for years but you know, and other guys that play up there and you know, the Japanese tour is a long way from the tour it was in the 80s and 90s and the 70s and even, you know. But, but, but Peter was a big part of, he was a big star up there. You know, you, you mentioned attending the, uh, the tournament uh, as a, a young fella at Metropolitan. Uh, just dragging you back a little bit, maybe. I believe you started your golfing adventures in the fairways of Eastern Golf Club in Doncaster, uh, the suburbs of Melbourne. You might tell us a little bit of how those formative days spent caddying and, I believe, jumping the fence to sneak onto the course, influenced the career path you would eventually explore. Well, I did. It's true. My parents bought a house at the back of the golf course. It was kind of backed onto the, the eighth tee, pretty much. It's kind of 150 yards away. You jump the fence and walk around the dam by the, used to, on, on the seventh and get up, jump onto the eighth tee. So I, I started by the kid next door and I, we wanted to make some money really. So it was a job. We went and caddy. So we turned up on Tuesday. We had no clue. We knew nothing about golf really. So we turned up on Tuesday and the pro said, ladies day, mate, come back tomorrow. So I came back on Wednesday and there was a visitor down from Sydney who I caddied for. And, you know, we, that was, I got, I got a dollar, which was pretty good. And then we came back on Saturday and, Got a, I, I got a couple, you know, we, we got a couple of regulars who played in the morning, and a couple of regular guys who played in the afternoon. And the young kid in the pro shop, in fact, he wasn't even a pro, he was like a 15 year old who turned pro about four months later. And he, he was like, he was a god because he had his name on his bag by the time he was 16. We were 12. His dad was the superintendent there. 
and he was tremendously helpful in you know he embraced us really you know we would you know he let us into the back of the pro shop we'd have a lunch in the back of the pro shop and we used to caddy for him in the tournaments and I mean, he was only 16 or 17 but he seemed so much older than we were so again that was a great example of someone growing the gas that's what uh, i hate that term but i much prefer nurturing the game but you know and then you know we'd caddy for him and we started to play and one night we jumped the fence and we we're out playing and, and he's his dad, who was the greenkeeper, drove up and I thought, oh, we're, you know, he's going to tell us off and kick us off the course. And he said, it's great to see your kids playing. Just stay out of the road of the members. You'll be fine. Because, of course, you couldn't join the club till you were 14. So so we basically carried there on the weekends and during the week in school holidays and played the course at night. And we both joined there when we were 14. And by the time I was 14, I was a kind of half-decent player. I was like a 10 handicap and, you know, I was, I was starting to be a reasonable player. But it was a great club. You know, the members were fantastic and you know, they, they taught us a lot about playing golf. And, and, the, and the guys I carried for were 27 handicappers who, when I was starting out, that was a good player. Hit the ball in the air and broke 100. That was pretty good. So that, they were old guys who were long since gone, but um, Eddie Jones and Howard Hamilton were, you know, they were my guys. And, and they, you know, it was, it was a dollar around and Howard used to tip me. Sorry, how Eddie used to give me a dollar twenty in the morning, and Howard used to buy me lunch in the afternoon. So it was a, you know, that was that was thirty six holes work for the price of pretty much two new golf balls. So the equivalent today of starting at seven in the morning and finishing at five thirty at night for fourteen Australian dollars. So no kids doing that now, right? Not at all. I guess you would yeah. hardly buy a... How, how many Pro V1s would that get you? Two? One? Two, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so how, how many kids are catting 36 holes for the price of two Pro V1s? And, and yet we loved it. You know, and, and the club in return let us play the golf course. You know, it was a great... It was a, it was a fantastic environment to grow up in. And, and there were good players at the club. You know, there, there was the probably the best... Junior in Australia was a member there. A guy called Rod Beale, who was a, you know, he, he was in the Interstate Series, which is the big kind of teams matches in Australia. He was played number one for Victoria and was undefeated through that. Same year that Greg Norman was playing number five for Queensland. So, um, you know, that, that was that was, a, it was some sort of indication of the standard of golf amongst the best under twenty one year olds in Australia. And Greg was a contemporary years, yeah. Well, he was a couple of years older than me. He was he was um, January nineteen fifty five. His birthday was, and I was in the middle of fifty seven. So he was he was two and a half years older than I was. But the as I said, the interstate series was 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 a big deal for the under twenty ones and and the kind of senior interstate series, which was all, all of the best amateurs in Australia. So Greg played in 1974, the first time I played. He turned pro in 75 and was working at a golf course in Sydney. And then in 1976, it was Easter, he was picking up the balls on the range for us. So Peter Senior, Wayne Grady, uh, Roger Mackay, you know, a whole, 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 
whole bunch of us were playing in 76 and April 76 and Greg was the assistant pro at Royal Queensland was picking up the balls on the range and in October I think it was October September October he won the West Lakes Classic which was a big tournament in Australia David Graham Bruce Devlin Bob Shearer everyone was there and he opened up with I think he shot 64 67 66 10 shot lead and then he he played the rest of that year out Played really well. You know, he was a, this kid's going to be a star. And we all knew about him, but no one else had ever heard of him. And then he went to, what did he do? He played in Japan. He won a tournament in Japan in April. Went over to Europe. I don't know where he played his first tournament, but he missed the cut. And then he went to the, Mar the, the Martini at Blairgarry in Scotland and buried five of the last six holes and beat Simon Hobday by a shot. So that was Greg. Greg was... Didn't take him long to fly. No, the rest the rest is history, as they say. The rest is history, yeah. In terms of, of your career, I guess you, you very niftily tiptoed over in 1978. You were uh, the Australian amateur champion, I believe. I was, yeah. I won that, which was... I played a guy called... It was a, shows how fluky match play is. Um, I barely qualified at Royal Queensland. When the draw came out, I was on the practice there with a friend of mine, a guy called Ian Hood, and I looked at the draw and said, Hoody, I can win this tournament. There's no one in our half of the draw. All the good players. Peter Senior, Peter Sweeney, who won it a couple of years before, Chris Benithan, Tony Gresham, Phil Wood, Colin Kay, all the really good amateur players in Australia. They were all on one side of the draw. And there was, it wasn't that there was no one on my side of the draw, but I kind of looked at the guys I was going to play and thought, well, I can beat all them. And I duly almost got beaten in the first round to a bloke who was a really good friend of mine. And then I played Bob Stevens in the third round, who was there's a connection to Seven Mile Beach. Bob Stevens, Bruce Devlin, Peter Toogood and Doug Backley, who won the British Amateur in 1954, were part of the winning, the first winning Eisenhower Cup at the old course at St Andrews. So Peter's son, Anthony, is the superintendent at Seven Mile Beach. So uh, there's a kind of roundabout connection with... So, uh, so I played Bob Stevens in the third round, who was kind of a legend of amateur golf who really hadn't played for years and turned up and won a couple of matches. And... So, yeah, so I, I finished up beating Tony Gresham in the final. But I kind of fluked him. I had a lucky shot on the 16th hole out of the trees and beat him one up, which was a... Feather in my cap, I guess. That's golf, Mike, and that's match play. That is, yeah, it's match play. That's exactly right. Probably the purest form of the game, if you ask me. Well, it's a, you know, I love match play. You know, it's kind of, you know, it seems like the Australian amateur now is a stroke play tournament. And, you know, logistically, it makes more sense, I guess. But I, I love playing match play. You know, I, th I thought it was a great part of the game. We're very fortunate here that certainly our high-level amateur events are predominantly match play, maybe two-round stroke play, qualifying into top 64 for uh, for match play purposes. And as you probably know, the north is on in Port Rush, the south is on in La Hinch, the uh, east is on in Baltray, and uh, yeah. the west is on in, in County Sligo. And then the close and the the Irish amateur will kind of move around the place every every year, year or so. So I, I, I've certainly... 
heard you speak previously about the quality of golf courses that high-level amateurs play, vis-a-vis, and I guess, com- comparison to the maybe humdrum stock yeah. golf courses that perhaps the European Tour and the PGA Tour play. Yeah, that's true. If you if you want to play great golf courses, in stay in amateur. Um, but in fact, that was the the first article I wrote for Steve Perkin on the Sunday Age was about we were playing at Royal Melbourne that week and I wrote about when I turned pro I I was only, the only pro events I knew were the ones in Australia and we always played the best courses you know and I was I wrote about being amazed the first time I went to Europe and realized that that wasn't what pro golf was at all you know, sure, you played at Sangdal and Shanti and uh, Bremen in Germany and um, you know, Port Marnock, obviously, for the Irish Open. And, but we played a lot of pretty ordinary golf courses. But, the, but as I said, my assumption was that all pro golf was on great golf courses. And I was soon dissuaded of that notion that you know, pro golf was nothing truer than the notion that pros would play down the road for a million dollars. Well, it was £100,000 then, but... Yeah, it was. Um, but having said that, we played some very good golf courses on the European tour. You know, we played Moortown, Port Marnock, Los Brisas was a decent course in Spain. I loved playing at Porto de Hero in Spain, San Cluj, um, You know, there, there were lots of good courses we played there. You know, you played the European tour during the halcyon days of Ballesteros, uh, Sandy Lyle, Ian Wisdom. Yeah, um, Faldo, Langer, Sandy. Yeah. Exactly. What can you tell us any 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 interesting stories perhaps that you call from your time as on, on the European tour? Well, there are too many, really, but you know, I mean for me the I think what you said, you know, the, the best story about playing the European tour was that we got to play the the absolute best era of that tour, I think. You know, to play with Sevi and Faldo and Langer and Lyle and Woolsey and Elizabeth and you know, Monty a bit later. It was a phenomenal time for that tour. And I, you know, I mean, and Sevi was the king of it, really. I mean, there was no one that was even remotely close to, you know, what he was. And, and you know, everyone, you know, I, I, I guess that people never told him before he died, but you know, everyone loved Sevi. I mean, they truly loved him as a player and what he'd done and his charisma and, and how he was and what he meant to that tour. I mean, I mean he, everyone who played that tour, from Faldo down, owed a massive debt of gratitude to Sevi for playing that tour and just being who he was. I mean, he was just amazing. And such a, it was such a privilege to watch that guy play golf. It was, you know, it was, you know, he talked to, you know, Frank Nobolo and Tony Johnson and Peter Fowler and, Greg Turner and you know guys, my contemporaries who, you know, played that tour, and we're all in awe of what he did and who he was and what he contributed to that tour. I mean, he'd be horrified by what's going on now. You know, this Saudi tour, and you know, we just, I mean, there's no way he'd have sold his. I mean, Sevi was Sevi. Don't get me wrong, Sevi loved money, and but there's no way he'd be doing what these guys are doing now. I don't think. And he and he made that. Yeah, you know, he made that. I mean, clearly, the money is so big in America now that if you were 
one of the best players in the world. You'd be crazy not to play in America. But, you know, those guys got well played to turn up every week and they like playing in Europe. And, you know, I, I, got ever, I never really spoke to Sevi about it, but I, I got the sense that, you know, that culturally Spain is such a different place from America that, that he loved living in Spain and playing in Europe because he was used to the, the way things were done in Europe. And America is a much different place. And, you know, in Spain, they get home from work at 8 o'clock and go to dinner at 10 o'clock. In America, you know, if you're not out of the restaurant at 6.30, you're kind of stamping at the table and saying, you know. So it's, um, you know, Americans never really understood Seppi, but, you know, so, so, you know, my story of playing the European tour was that, I, you know, I think I played in the, you know, an era that was just incredible for that for that tour. Great tournaments. You know, the Irish Open at Port Marnock was... It was, a, it was a phenomenal event there. You know, you know we loved, and, and, and everyone played it. Everyone, you know, and it was funny. You know, I played with as a story. The last round of the Op- the Irish Open in 1987, I played with Nick Faldo, and we were kind of middle of the pack. And Langer was blitzing it. He blitzed it that he was what he shoot 19 under or something. I think he made two bogeys for the week, maybe at Port Marnock, which was just phenomenal. And Faldo was kind of bumping it around, not in the middle of his swing change. He'd won the Spanish Open at Los Brisas in March of that year, March or April, maybe even May. Um, This is two weeks before the Open at Muirfield. And Langer's just playing like a, just a, Blitzing Port Marnock, blitzing it. Probably the, one of the greatest tournaments ever played on the European tour, probably on any tour. And Fellow, the last thing Fellow looked like was, you know, when I played that day with him, it was like, if someone had said, this guy's going to win the Open in two weeks, it's like, what? He's serious? You know, he's, we were 20 shots behind Bernard or whatever. And Langer's playing like, you know, the German band. And two weeks later, Fellow won the Open. It was like, wow, that was amazing. How'd that happen? Which shows how quickly golf can turn around. And it wasn't like he was playing terribly, but it just didn't look like this guy's going to win the Open in two weeks, but he did. That was the year he finished with 18 pars to beat Zinger on the the last. It was. It was, yeah. Roger Davis was second. Everyone remembers A. Zinger losing, but Roger Davis was second by a shot as well. I guess going back to Sebi just for a moment, uh, I mean, he was certainly adored uh, in these islands, both in Ireland and the UK. Probably didn't help that I, I certainly recall one American journalist calling him Steve, not Sebi. Yeah, well, um, well not, not one, but multiples. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Yeah. But a, a, a very, a, I guess, a vivid memory I have is of his, uh, his win at Royal Dublin in 1985 where did a little... Uh, cameo of his celebrations he in St Andrews in 84. You obviously played uh, the three years at Royal Dublin. What do you remember of those particular tournaments, if anything? I remember Steve Williams getting for me in 1984 and I played, it was my 23rd tournament in 24 weeks in 17 countries. There you go. And I three-putted the last to miss the cut. To miss the cut. And Steve said, you better take a week off. I said, yeah, it's probably a good idea. Because the next week was in Galway, which I, uh, where I think Finchie finished second. So I remember three playing the last to miss the cut. 
Um, I remember in 85, playing with Christy O'Connor, the old old Christy. Christy Senior, yeah. Who I'd play, Christy Senior, who I'd played with in Melbourne. There was an Irish guy called Paul Bray who was grew up playing a lot, grew up playing golf in Ireland, played with Des Smith a lot. Came out to, uh, he emigrated to Australia and joined Metropolitan. So I knew Paul pretty well. So one year there was a, there was a senior kind of tournament in in Sydney, and um, Christy came out with a guy called Jimmy Martin. Was it Jimmy Martin? Jimmy Irish Kessler, pro? maybe. No, no, it was Jimmy Martin. No, I think Jimmy Martin, okay. Um, there were a couple of old guys, and I played with Christy at Metro. So I kind of knew him a little bit, but I, I remember, you know, I don't know how old he was in 1985, but he was in his 50s, certainly, by a long way. And he played with the top flight ball, that rock-hard top flight thing, and just a beautiful... I mean, everyone. I mean, everyone says the same thing about him. He was just a beautiful player. So it was kind of cool to play with Christy in the Irish Open, and... But I remember Seve making that putt in the playoff to beat Langer, right? He made that long putt right, to beat yeah, Bernard yeah. on mm-hmm. the, yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, it's a, it was a, it was a great time. I, I guess if we just maybe have a look at Sandbell Golf for a moment, I and mean, Aston McKenzie obviously rightly receives many plaudits for changing the face of Australian golf course design during his two and a half month trip to Australia in 1926. I understand that the great Dr. McKenzie only ever saw one hole completed prior to his departure for Australia, sorry, for Argentina from Australia. Do you think the supporting cast of his local design partner, Alex Russell, the master builders Mick and Vern Morecambe, and possibly the Emmett's greenkeeper, Claude Crockford, get enough credit for putting the legacy into the ground and maintaining it thereafter? Uh, they probably didn't. I mean, no one had ever, I mean, Graham Grant, the guy who restored Kingston Heath, was the, he was the first guy who ever mentioned Mick Morecambe to me. So no one spoke about Morecambe in, in the 80s. No one spoke about golf course design in the 80s, really. So um, that was my first coming across Morecambe's name. And Graham spoke about him with great reverence. But Graham had started his apprenticeship. And his brother, Bruce, who was my partner in our first design business, they both started working for Crockford at Royal Melbourne as as 18-year-old kids. So Crockford was the famous greenkeeper at Royal Melbourne. But Alec Russell was it was a brilliant designer in his own right. I mean, he probably only built you know, five or six main courses, but all of them tremendous. Uh, Paraparam in New Zealand, Lake Karen up, Yarra Yarra, the East Course at Royal Melbourne. So R- Russell was great. Uh, Morecambe was a great constructor. Crockford was a great superintendent who came there not long after Mackenzie had gone, but probably certainly within a decade, I would think. You know, sometime in the 30s, Crockford went to Royal Melbourne. But do Russell and Morecambe get enough credit? No, probably not. And in fairness, Mackenzie in the spirit of St Andrews barely mentions Australia, barely mentions Royal Melbourne. In fact, he, he, he hardly talks about Royal Melbourne at all. He turned up, gave him a concept, gave him a plan. I guess he spent a, you know, a couple of months there, but he also went to Royal Adelaide and New South Wales and Royal Sydney and wrote reports to Metropolitan and he rebunkered Kingston Heath and you know, he, had, he had some influence in Victoria. So you, know, you can't do a whole lot in two and a half months, but he did a decent amount. But I think he'd already written Golf Architecture by then, 1920, so this was six years later. So 
you know, we assume that that all Russell and Crockford and Morecambe had read that book. You know, I assume they came down and sat around dinner tables every night that he was in Melbourne and spoke about golf and how how it should be. And he spent a bunch of time at Royal Melbourne and showed him what he wanted and he got in a boat and left. And he left it to Morecambe and Russell to carry out his plans and they did an incredible job. You know, so it's one of the best golf courses ever built, really. It's, it's a flawless bit of construction. So, you know, it's really hard to know what happened. And the cool thing about Seven Mile Beach is Lucas is here with a, with a, with a, with a video camera kind of recording what's going on, not for our, our edification, but, you know, I think if it turns out to be a pretty decent course, I think, you know, it would be fascinating to look back at if you could have had a record of the conversations that Morecambe had with Mackenzie and Russell had with Mackenzie and how the whole thing played out. But I guess they just didn't, it wasn't what you did back then. You just went and did your work and left. But, you know, there's so much more access to um, recording how these things come about. So, you know, um, but as I said, Mackenzie, in the spirit of St Andrews, Barely, barely even mentions Royal Melbourne. It's hard to credit, really. Yeah. I mean, I was, as I mentioned earlier on, I was very lucky to make, make it down to Australia in January, 19, sorry, 2020, not 1920, and did make a fleeting visit to Melbourne with the bush fire yeah. still making the headlines. And obviously, fortunately, got to play Kingston Heath and, and Victoria in your own home course in Metropolitan. Unfortunately, RM was holding the Masters of the Amateurs Tournament and therefore was closed to visitor play. So I can only imagine what the delights on offer are there, are, 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 are on the go there. I was actually awestruck by the pureness, the strategic test exemplified by the majestic Kingston Heath. For listeners that have not yet made the pilgrimage to the Sandbell, can you explain what characterizes the best stretch of golf in the Southern Hemisphere, if not the world? Yeah, well, it's not... Oh, I've got a cramp in my leg. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> let me stand up for a second. No problem. Oh, can you believe that? Oh wow! Um, too much, too much walking about. Too much walking. Oh my god! Um, the great thing about the sandbelt is that a lot of it's not on very interesting land. It's mostly flat. I mean, you've played Metropolitan. It's a flat. You know, it's a really flat golf course. Kingston Heath is. People talk about Kingston Heath being flat. It's not flat, but certainly not undulating. Apart from those, you know, fourteen over the hill, fifteen, sixteen. Um, you know, it's great greens, great bunkers, great short fours, great medium length par threes, and beautiful sand to build in. So, so, so it's a triumph of you know building good golf on great soil, really, and understanding strategy. And Mackenzie and Morgan. Mackenzie largely, I suspect, showing us what great golf looked like. You know, if he'd never come down, I don't think we'd have had anywhere near as good an idea of what great golf actually looked like. And he showed us what, what, what great golf was. And in that kind of dynamic sort of period of five or six or seven years, we built a whole bunch of tremendous golf courses in the city. But no greater than what's in New York or Chicago or Philadelphia or London. Or I mean, London's... It amazes me how much great golf there is in London. It's incredible. So it's really no better or no different from that. It's just a, you know, it's a city that got lucky that had men who were inspired to build great golf, who were willing to fund it, 
and formed clubs and they found great land and they found Harry Colt and, and you know, largely and, you know, Fowler and uh, Abercrombie and Simpson in London and Mackenzie in Melbourne and Russell and they just built great golf. And, you know, the games, you know, they nurtured the game. They didn't grow it, they nurtured it. And, and, and the game grew as a result of that. But, you know, the, 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 they understood what great golf looked like, what great golf was, how it played, how to manage that mix between, you know, playable for everyone, but not making every shot playable for every player. So, you know, there's people expect, people think that they mistake a course being playable for everyone, as in every shot should be playable for every player. Whereas you know, the great 15th hole that Mackenzie built at Kingston Heath, which was, it was originally a short par, par four over a hill, blind short par four over the hill that Mackenzie described as a blot on the golf course and built the 15th hole when he was there. And, you know, the mean, deep left bunker, big berth of the members call it. Um, if you're not a competent bunker player, you can't get out of it. You know, so it's, so it's a great example of a course that's really playable for the members, but it doesn't mean every shot's playable. And, and, and Mackenzie would argue that if that bunker there inspires you to learn how to be a better bunker player, because if you can play that shot, you can play any shot. And it's kind of true. He would be an exponent of sort your grip out as opposed to sort the bunker out. Sort your grip out. Learn how to use, learn how to keep the loft on the club, and learn how to use the bounce on the sole. You know, and if you don't learn those things, then you're never going to be a competent bunker player. That's part of learning how to play golf. And, and, and it's difficult bunkers that teach diligent players how to play difficult bunker shots. And once you can play difficult bunker shots, you can play any shot. He also spoke to uh, the inexorable march of technology and building elasticity into golf courses. Yeah. Given that comment, would it be fair to say that the game of golf is again at an inflection point of sorts? I mean, those of us that have read a bit might feel a sense of deja vu historically. Um, maybe you can explain where this feeling comes from. Well, it's, it's been at that point for 20 years, really. I mean, I've been, you know, been a lot of it, I mean, you know, not me, but I mean, Jack Nicholas and Weisskopf and Jeff Shackelford and, you know, Tom Doak and Gil Hansen, you know, we're all banged on about the game being completely out of scale now. I mean, those guys, you know, Mackenzie and Ross and Tilling, all those great architects, you know, they, they would build a 460-yard hole using the assumption that that was going to be a test of a drive and a long iron. And lots of 460-yard holes now are test of drive and nine irons and drives and wedges for the top players. So the game is, you know, there's no such thing as a three-shot hole anymore um, you know the game is so out of scale in terms of how they thought it should be played and how it's played now I and mean, I've carried for Elvis Smiley for you know the last couple of weeks I mean he's basically it's a wedge into every, every par four and every par five's reachable with an iron and you know he's a typical you know pro golfer in this era and you know I, I just hate to see courses that McKenna, those great architects built and, and the way they intended those courses to play and the, the shots they wanted the best players to hit 
just not being relevant anymore. You know, the first at Kingston Heath, we moved the tee back 30 yards up against the, basically the dining room window. And it was a par five from the members tee until 1968. And Thomas Peters in the World Cup in the foursome drove Nicholas Colsarts 80 yards off the green. And John Rahm on the, in, in the World Cup, on, on the 17th hole, which is a blind, formerly a par five, now a par four, 400, I don't know, 435 metre hole or something, 475 yards, Kingston Heath. John Rahm drove it on top of the hill. He could see the green. I mean, no one ever thought that was even possible. So, you know, Mackenzie, if, if he came back now, would go crazy. So, you know, he would walk into the RNA office and say, didn't you read my book? I told you 85 years ago the ball was going too far. You know, what have you done? What are you doing? So their report, isn't the distance report coming out in May, I think, this year, USGA and the RNA? So hopefully they do something about it. But if they don't, you know, the thing that you know, I've banged on about is that the freaking one generation, all, all the way back to Ted Ray, then Sneed, then probably Nicholas, then, you know, Norman Davis Love, then Daly, then Tiger, now Bryson, is that the freak in one generation always becomes the norm in the next. So the people that run the game, happy that the average driving distance in 10 years from now is going to be 320 yards. I mean, how do you build a hole that tests a drive in a four iron? If it's not 570 yards, you don't, well, you, you, know, you, just, you, you don't, you can't. And the, and the game's not sustainable at that level because... You, people aren't going to build golf courses only for pro tournaments. Because if you want to build a course that replicates the test of 70 years ago, it's got to be 8,000 yards plus. So who's going to pay for that? And, 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 and what paying customer wants to play that golf course? No one wants to do that. So, you know, I saw, who was it the other day? Tom Watson, maybe? He said the game, the game needs to adapt. Well, you know, we're building a brand new golf course now on, on a world-class site. What does adapt mean? Does that mean build a golf course 8,000 yards long that no one wants to play except Bryson and the best players in the world who are never going to play there anyway? So, so what, is, what does adapt mean? How, I mean, how does the game adapt to the ball going 310 yards plus? And with the promise and the certainty of that being the norm, in, you know, if we learn anything from history... That's going to be the norm in 10 or 15 years' time. You can bet there are kids out there now, 15, 16, 17 years old, college kids out there who are swinging the club at 130 miles an hour and we all know how far that ball goes. So, you know, what happens to a... Let alone a driver in a three-iron hole. What happens to a driver seven-iron hole? You know, is that extinct in golf? Seems like you know, that's where we're headed. So hopefully that, you know, I hear lots of people who say they're never going to do anything about the ball. I, I think it's inevitable they're going to have to because it's just going to get to the point where what's the point of a, what is the point of a golf course? What's the point of a golf course if, we're, if every player is hitting, you know, it's easy to say every player is hitting a wedge. Well, what's a wedge now? You know, what's a, it's a 46 degree club, so it's a, so it's a nine iron really, but you know, is the game supposed to be a succession of smash drives as far as you can hit it? 
and short irons. And par fives that are drives and four, five and six irons and, you know, drivable par fours that have turned into three wooden two iron holes. And, you know, where's the game going? What's it all about? And it's, you know, every great architect, of, of, you know, from Mackenzie to Ross to Chillinghouse to Thomas to Simpson, they would, they would come back and go, well, what the hell happened? You know, you was, your job was to, there are two points to the equipment regulations. And, you know, as Mike Wan said, you know, you know, I want golfers to be excited about what's under the Christmas tree. That's not the point of equipment regulation, with all respect. The point of equipment regulation is to maintain the skill it takes to play golf and to defend the golf courses. And anyone who watched skillful drivers of my era, ultra skillful, Nicholas was the, I put Seve in that class because I saw him hit so many great drives. You know, Weisskopf, Miller, Norman, guys who could drive, the guys who dominated the open with a, with a Trevino, with a wooden driver and a ballada ball, when you properly had to rip that thing through the wind. You know, I forgot what I was going to say now. But, um, you know, well, so defending the skill it took to play the game. So, you know, with a ballada ball and a persimmon driver, how much easier is it now to hit a frying pan and, and a top flight, which is essentially what a you know, great ball as it is, but what a Pro V1 is. It's a top flight that spins. So, you know, it's so much easier to rip the ball through the wind and, and hit it a long way to the point where everyone does it. Whereas only the truly skillful players of my generation could hit the ball long and straight. I mean, Graham Masters hit it really straight and he could flush it and he was long into the wind, but he wasn't Greg Norman. But he was a beautiful driver. He, you know, he was a Trevino-type driver who could compete because he was great at everything else, except in Marcy's case out of bunkers, but he was the worst bunker player in history. But you know, he was a great iron player and a, and a great driver without being overly powerful, which is why he probably didn't win a major. I mean, he had a chance to win a few of them, but you, know, you could say, well, you know, if he'd been more powerful, he would have won a major. Well, yeah, sure, but you know, he, he won 50 or 60 tournaments in his career, albeit being one of the worst bunker players in history, broke off, so that, which tells you how, how well he hit the ball. But, you know, Marshy was a great driver, but not a long driver. But, you know, the guys who could, you know, the truly great players could drive it a long way and pretty straight. Just at the on. distance point, Mike, you could make an argument perhaps that maybe the game isn't quite as interesting, given the fact that, as you say, it's smash and, smash and hit wedge, as opposed to actually having any real strategic decisions to make. Are you on the limit in terms of trying to... I mean, we, we look at Rory a couple of weeks ago when he was on the limit trying to take on a shot on the 18th at, uh, in, in the Middle East. You know, I think he 278 to the, to the pin, obviously made a, made, made a bit of a mess of it. But, but took the shot on and, and had no thought that it was it was with, with, without the you know he could carry the ball two sixty or two sixty five to cover the front. I mean, yeah. it's it's just siege gun stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, is the game more or less interesting than it was? I mean, I think it's less interesting because I don't think the golf courses play the way their architects intended them to play. And, you know, if Mackenzie saw. The second at Royal Melbourne as being a you know a reachable two shot par five. He saw it as a drive in a 
three iron or a four iron or a five iron. In the sense of driver nine iron or driver eight iron. You know, so I think it's less interesting in that sense, which is not to say, you know, I, mean, I love, you know, I think, I like watching these kids play. Uh, Canning for Elvis is great fun. And I think that, you know, there were 50, there were 50 guys at the Vic Open last week who, if you'd stuck them on the range in any, in, on any tournament in Australia in 1980, would have had the best swing on the range. So technically, they're, you know, they're terrific golf swings. They're really good players, better than we were, I think. But, you know, it's hard to tell given what would they be like if they were playing with the equipment we played with. But, you know, I think the advent of the, the mobile phone and, third, you know, from, from the minute you start playing golf, you can see your golf swing. And kids are great imitators, so they can imitate. I mean, I, I mean you know, I, I didn't see The first time I saw my swing and it, it was a picture or pictures of it was, was six years, five years after I started playing golf. And that's it. You know, you've got no clue what your swing looks like until you see it and go, my God, that's horrendous. You know, but now, you know, there's so much, I mean, the, the, the technology, well, the technology that was in a video camera that you used to lug around in the two-part video camera, it's now on, on your mobile phone, only better. It gives kids a chance when they grow up to see their swings as kids and adapt and learn and you know, make them technically so much better than ours were and, and much less idiosyncratic. And, you know, they see Adam Scott or... You know, there are so many who look like they swing kind of the same. I mean, they don't really, but you know, there are so many swings that look very much the same because they're on plane and technically correct. So inevitably, if you take a bunch of six-foot 15-year-olds, 18-year-olds or whatever, and you teach them how to swing on plane, then their swings are going to look the same. They're going to look awfully similar. But we were all over the shop, really, when we played. So, which is why you saw so many idiosyncratic swings. You know, the way Sandy swung the club, the way he didn't. You know, Des Smith swung the club the way he didn't. I mean, no one, you know, you would never let a kid now swing the club the way Des Smith did, but what a player he was. Wow, a tremendous player. But, you know, that big you know, reverse C. And, I mean, you just, you just, no one does that now. But that was his own move and he made it work and he played tremendous golf. So you could argue say Eamon Darcy is uh, is pretty well, similar yeah, to, well, to to well, to, to Matt, Matt Wolf. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, Darcy was, you know, how the hell do you? I I asked him. I said, Darcy, how did you swing like that? Yeah, how did you start? Well, you know, how did you finish up with that swing? He said, he said I played hurling, hmm. which I'd never seen played. But he said, you know, yeah, I played hurling. That was so I was just that, that was what I did. But I mean, what a what a swing and what a player, man! He was crazy, but why well, he could play? <laughs> the freestyle fact, right out there. In fact, it was funny. I, I saw Christy Junior giving Darcy a lesson on the range in Frankfurt one year. No, Dusseldorf. And he was asking him about where's the club pointing at the top. You know, so his right hand's barely hanging on. His elbow's sticking out at you know right angles. But he wanted to know where the club was at the top. I sat, I sat there and watched for three or four swings, and the club was that was perfect. It was right where he wanted it. The fact that his arms were all over the shop, but he had the shaft in the face, yeah. right where he wanted it. You know, Just so goes there, there to show a, you. Don't don't, don't yeah. play golf swing. Yeah, yeah. Darcy could really play, but um, 
you know, the, the game evolves and, and it's, you know, I sound like this, the old father who bitches about, you know, things were better in my day. But I think that, you know, the way golf courses played with the equipment we played with meant they were, I mean, and they weren't, they didn't play the way Mackenzie thought them playing. I mean, we weren't hitting, you know, reams of, apart from the first and the third at Wentworth and a few other holes, in a, you know, in a wet summer. Um, we weren't hitting fairway woods into par fours very often, which was, you know, routine in the, in, in the 20s and 30s. So, you know, the game had gone from lots of fairway woods into, into par fours and par fives in, in the 20s to, you know, we, 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 I guess we'd graduated into hitting threes and fours and five irons. Well, now we've just graduated into the same holes of eight, nines and wedges. I mean, look, we've been run, John Rahm driving down the bottom of the hill at the first at Wentworth a couple of years ago. Just pitched it, pitched it up a hill on the green. I mean, you know, what's the point of the first at Wentworth if it's a drive and a wedge? You know, there was a great test of a drive and a three wood or if it was wet or a, certainly a drive and a four or five iron. You know, it's gone, that stuff, largely. Yeah, do you think so they'll the do anything, is, really? Yeah, I'm sure they will. I'm, you know, I guess I'm in the minority there, but I, I can't believe that the guys who sit around the table that USGA and the RNA can't see what's wrong with the game and you know, um, determined to do something about it. I just can't believe that they're going to going to wimp it. And, you know, I, I've got more hope in their um, understanding that the way it's going is not the most interesting way that, that golf at the top level is played. And, and it's, only at the, it's only at the top level, really. I mean, you know, the equipment's made the game... It's made it easier for the average player. But you know, one of the problems is that largely it's an American-centric debate because America's got the biggest golf population and that's where the, all, all the manufacturers are. And then, of course, you know, got the ear of the um, administration. But, again, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, yeah, um, the average American golfer has no idea that we've already been through a rollback. You know, back in 1983, we all switched to the big ball because that's what happened. You know, no one complained about it much. We just, in fact, Thompson complained about it, but it was largely why we blindly following the Americans was his argument. But Australian golfers and golfers in Britain and Europe and Japan and Asia and New Zealand without much complaint, gave up 25 yards and switched to playing with a 1.68-inch ball. And you'd think, listening to the Americans complain about giving up distance, the world was going to end. Well, the world didn't end in 1983 when we just, every single amateur in Australia and the rest of the world took up playing with a big ball. And it's like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. Well, let's do that. You know, we should we should play with a standardised ball. Let's play with a standardised ball. If we lose 25 yards, which of course they didn't because the best players lost 25 yards, but the average players lost much less than that. And arguably it made the game easier for a lot of them. It was easier to play bunker shots with. It was easier to chip with. It was Maybe it was easier to putt with. You know, it was easier for women to get up in the air because it was lighter. It was, it was relatively lighter because it weighed the same but it was bigger. So, you know, it wasn't all bad, but 
we've been through a rollback and the argument that people are going to give up golf if they lose 25 yards was you know, it was it was dispelled by what happened in the early 80s around the world and if someone wants to give up golf because they lose 10 or 15 yards off their tee shot well he's playing for the wrong reason move up a tee go 15 yards up and play from up there you know it's crazy I guess just picking up what you just said there in re- regard to moving tees or moving up on tees, I guess the handicap situation probably feeds into that and the lack of variety and the lack of maybe a little bit of imagination in terms of course setup. Would that be fair? Uh, yep. Yeah, there's yeah, there's um, some courses here have got imaginative superintendents who you know, we'll, we'll put a certain T position out to match a pin position and move T's around. And, you know, but we're still, in Australia, we're still obsessed with the monthly medal. Every, every, every T mark is at the back. And, you know, just, we don't do things very imaginatively here. And I think, you know, I think the USGA was great at moving T's around in, in, in US Opens. And was it the 14th hole in that Torrey Pines Open with Rocco and Tiger that they moved the 14th T up? What, 150 yards or something, and made it a short putt, turned a long par four into a short par four. And, you know, golf needs more of that. They played that whole Chambers Bay as a, the 18th hole as a par four the first two days and a par five the last two days. And, you know, it's kind of crazy, but yeah, it's great. You know, we need more imagination in course setups and, you know, matching tee position to pin positions and thinking about, you know, how the course plays from day to day. It's that variety point, I suppose. I mean, if you think about Tom's Little Devil at, at, at Barnbogle, that can't be any more than 120 yards, not to mention the phenomenal series of, of short fours you have in on the sand belt and indeed th- throughout Australia. I yeah. certainly remember one of, one of the ones on the back nine at Bonnie Dune, 16 maybe or 15. Pretty, pretty phenomenal. Yeah, there was, yeah. I'm a short, short four. Yeah, there, there are some good ones there. There are some really good platforms at Bonnie Dune. But, um, Australians are great at short par fours. I think better than almost anywhere else in the world, really. At, you know, doing the the what do I do here today? Hole. How, how do I manage this hole today? Of course, the arguably the best of them is the twelfth on the L course, which is a tremendous kind of perplexingly difficult short four because you're always tempted to kind of drive it through that little slot in the middle of the fairway and through the bunkers and get on the green, but so, um, but Australians do those holes really well. You know, we've done a few. I mean, obviously the one Tom and I did at Bamboogle is a great, the fourth at Bamboogle, but we, we played the Australian PGA at Royal Queensland a couple of, well, maybe a month ago, where the 12th hole we did, John Sun and Bruce Grant and I did, is a tremendous little short par four, great fun. And, you know, it was amazing how many different ways that the field tried to play that hole. And it was a, you know, the, the only way to make, I mean, I, in a sense, the greatness of those holes is the only way to make a five is to try and make a three. You know, if you just set out to make a four, you can make four all day. You can bump it down to the safe side of the fairway and bump it onto the safe side of the green. As long as you can two-putt, you can make fours all day. You won't make very many threes, but you'll never make a five. But the only way to make a five is to go out after a three and try for the, the reckless shot. 
you know, which is why they're so much fun, those holes, to build and to play. I've certainly heard your uh, former partner, Jeff Ogilvie, speak about the Sandbelt as a great classroom in relation to an appreciation of golf course design. I'm assuming it's had a huge influence on on the way you see golf. And, and obviously through that, the influence that St. Andrews had, the old course had on, on, on Mackenzie, obviously feeds into that in terms of the short fours and the strategic nature of it. I guess that was the one thing that really, I mean, when I played Kingston Heath, it was a spiritual experience in many ways and, and an awakening in terms of what I was looking at. Now, admittedly, part of that probably was couple of days off the off the long haul flight from 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 ireland but but I, I, it, it spoke to me which was was not something i was expecting and, and ultimately led me down this particular path that i'm on i suppose in addition to obviously listening to quite a bit of you but um i'm, I'm assuming that the design philosophy that that exists uh, throughout the sand belt has had a huge huge influence on the way you see the game and the way you design yep it has there's you know there's always a not always, but generally, uh, you know, the shot from the side of the fairway where the hazards are is nearly always an easier shot than the shot from the one on the other side of the fairway, which is kind of strategy 101, really. And um, there's no rough, really, no green rough. I mean, it's a very much an American phenomenon, this kind of long, thick green rough. So, you know, I... I we just grew up with great mowing lines, whitish fairways, wispy flyer rough, and short grass around the greens. And greens that cut right to the edge of the bunkers. Or bunkers that cut, yeah, greens that go right to the edge of the bunkers. So, you know, it's that kind of, that kind of style of golf I like. I mean, I just, you know, we just don't ever chip out of long grass. Well, that, that's not true here, of course we do, but you know, the, the vast majority of shots you play around the greens in Melbourne, you can putt because you're, play, you're playing off a perfect light. A putter's rarely the right club. You can always get down in three with a putter, but the right club is nearly always a chip or a pitch. But it's always a, it's a difficult shot off a perfect lie, as opposed to, you know, you watch a shot, you know, it's a generalisation, but the shot in the, PJ Tour of the US Open where the ball will run off the back of the green into four inches of grass, six inches off the back of the green. So what would be a really easy shot if it was short grass becomes a really difficult shot because they just stick in a bad lie. So they make easy shots difficult by giving you a terrible lie. Whereas on the sand belt, the, the, the equation works the other way. They give you a perfect lie. But they make the shot difficult because rather than the ball running a foot off the green and stopping in a six inches of rough, it goes down a bank and goes 20 yards over the back of the green or 15 yards over the green. Now you've got to, you can either lob wedge it up or you can hit a four iron along the ground or you can bump an eight iron into the bank, one part of the bank or a wedge into another part of the bank. Or So there are multiple options of the way to play the shot back. So it's a, you know, that's a, part of golf I've always enjoyed. And I don't think we've ever built a green anywhere or a course anywhere where rough around the greens has been a been the way the golf course plays. It's always short grass around the greens. Which is why people talk about the Augusta influence and how, you know, the Augusta syndrome and how 
influential Augusta is in, in golf around the world. Well, why doesn't anyone copy Augusta and, you know, the fact that there's no rough around the greens? You know, it's, and partly it's, you know, perhaps partly it's, you know, parts of the country it's difficult to do that because the, the, the soil and the, and the grass and the, and the conditioning and, and how it's maintained. But where you can, you know, short grass around the greens is such a great hazard, I think, because it sweeps the ball away from the green. So that's you know, part of Melbourne golf that really influenced me. And you know, so many of the holes to the point where it becomes you know, predictable, but, it, but, it, but not in a bad way, that um, the closer you play to the inside corner of the dog there, the closer you play to the hazards, the easier the shot you've got to the green. And of course, it's negated a bit by, again, the ball going so far that you know, when they built those courses, if you're on the wrong side of the fairway, having to carry a greenside bunker with a pickery shafted, a rudimentary 1930 steel shafted long iron blade, then that was a much more difficult shot than it was from the one that you could play to, play from the right side of the fairway and run the ball onto the green. It was, it was difficult to loft those clubs up in the air and stop them. But now you can play to the wrong side of the fairway and you can wedge the ball across the bunker and stop it, no problem at all. So the strategy's lost because the ball goes so far, in a sense. Because those holes were designed to, you know, hit the great high long iron shot from the wrong angle or to drive it down the proper angle and, and, and run the ball onto the green. Well, no one runs the ball onto the green anymore. It's a generalisation, but it's largely true that all the best players just, you know, Elvis, Elvis, you know, there were a couple of shots on the, 13th Beach is a lengthy course, and there were a couple of shots where, you know, I thought the right shot was to land it short and run it on. He just doesn't see that shot. You know, he gets up in the air and stops it, flies it all the way to the green. I was wondering, you know, rather than taking a seven, an eight iron, take a six iron and land it 20 yards short and bounce it on. It looks at me like, what are you talking about? Why would I do that? You need your head red. Well, he's never had to play that shot. He's never seen that shot. He's never seen anyone play it. I mean, of course, Peter Thompson was the master at that shot. But, you know, that's, that, that disappeared from the game long ago, that one. I guess the, the master is one of judgment. The, yeah, which is one of the fun games we play at Barnboogle is, apart from the seventh hole, where you really can't run the ball on the green. We, we play every hole and you're not allowed to land any ball on the green, any second shot or any, any shot any regulation shot to the green, you've got to land it short and bounce it on. And it's um it's so much fun to play. It's great fun to play it. So yeah, you know, so, so you you know if, if if it's an eight iron to the land the ball on the green, take a six iron, land it twenty yards short, and get the right force and land it in the right place and bounce it up and bounce it around. And it's such a cool game to play. So much fun. Yeah. But no one does that you- anymore. A nice little segue, just in terms of, of, of you mentioned mowing lines. I know Bruce Hepner, one of Tom Doak's main lieutenants on the Barn Bugle Project. Yeah. I've heard Bruce talk about an 85% rule to course improvements relating to tree management and amended mowing lines. In practice, really, what does that mean? And is it an approach that courses should, should adopt? Well, it means, you know, where's the golf course cut? So in almost every instance, it means widening the fairways out and getting rid of the the long grass around the greens. So, you know, um, 
sometimes it means um, connecting a green to a tea with short grass as opposed to long grass with a grass path through it. But you know, most often it's and and you know we call it the American disease of why are all the bunkers in the rough? You know, why is the rough between the fairway and the bunker? Well, you know, why are you stopping the ball running into the bunker? So that never made any sense to me because every bunker in Melbourne is it's always short grass all the way to the edge of the bunker. So the ball run, you know, if the ball's going to go in the bunker, it goes in the bunker. So you know, that's mowing lines quickly and trees are just you know. Um, Every, you know, every, every treed golf course in the world got overplanted by committees in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And Bruce and a bunch of other guys, are, me and you know, Tom, I mean, every architect who's working is dealing with you know, the result of poor, poor decisions made 50, 60, 40, 30, 20 years ago and chopping trees down. So, you know, it's controversial and it upsets lots of people. But the reality is that, you know, forests as a whole are poorly managed. You know, certainly in Melbourne, there were too many trees planted too close together because there was a reverence for isolating one hole from another, which is something I never understood. And, um, you know, just planting too many trees. To, in, in the wrong places and to me the wrong trees you know Melbourne was a classic city for you know we'd figured out by 1960 that our reverence for European trees was probably not a good idea and that was replaced by a reverence for native trees so something that was a native of Perth which is I don't know 3,000 miles it's a, it's a four hour flight from Melbourne or northern New South Wales or southern Tasmania, if it was an Australian native tree, it was okay to plant it. And so golf courses got planted with trees from all over the country, which was pretty much just as bad as planting European trees because no one, no one until this generation was arguing about what was growing here 200 years ago, what belongs here, what's indigenous to this site, and plant that. You know, so... We kind of, it was a big part of what we did at Victoria was there's a Euclid called the Coastal Managum, which is, as the name suggests, it grows on the coast, where it's windy. So the Coastal Managum is a short, stock, short, stocky, round tree that over millions of years decided that probably not a good idea to grow tall and big limbs because it's not a great idea to grow those by the sea where it's windy. Trees in the forest inland, were, that's what they were. Of course, people just you know, bought forest trees from inland and planted them on the coast. 50 years later, 60 years later, they start dropping their limbs in big winds because they're dangerous. They're, they're completely out of, their, out, out of their own environment, completely out of place, completely the wrong tree to plant. Yet when Graham Grant pulled all the mahogany gums out in the early 80s in at Kingston Heath, I mean, people went nuts. Oh, he's pulling down all the trees. Well, yeah, they were trees that should never have been planted. So, so you know, so, so that's the nub of the tree debate: is how do we properly replant the golf courses so they're sustainable for for the, for the next hundred years? And but 
rather but don't make the mistakes of thinking Europeans okay and then thinking any native of Australia is okay because you know, Perth is further from Melbourne than Moscow is from London. So no one's deciding that, you know, let's go and plant an Indigenous tree from, I've got no idea what it might be, from Moscow and plant it in London and, and call it a European native. I mean, you wouldn't, it's madness. But in Australia we were, you know, some, someone would go to Perth and see a nice tree in Perth and pick it up and bring it 3,000 miles across the country and plant it in Melbourne. Well, no wonder it didn't work. I guess the point you're trying to make there is maybe the right trees in the right place as opposed to the wrong right trees, trees in the right yeah. place. Well, the, well yeah, the right trees in the right place as opposed to the wrong trees in the wrong place. And don't plant too many of them. And, you know, if you're going to plant a big tree, give it, give it enough space to grow into the form it wants to grow into. Don't stick another one 10 feet to its left and you, know, you finish up with two trees that half grow because... They've got nowhere to go. You know, it's just beyond belief the mistakes they made. And, of course, it's a water, you know, replant golf courses. But it's a war we're winning, I think. But nonetheless, it's always a war. And, and, and every club you go to, it's the same arguments and same discussions and same points you're making. Because pretty much, I don't know what it's like over there, but, you know, every, every club in Melbourne, pretty every club in Australia, they all made the same mistakes. It wasn't like it was unique to Metropolitan or Commonwealth or Yarra Yarra or Lake Carinoff. They all did it. And, and the ones who were doing nothing, are, you know, they're way behind the eight ball now. Because, it's, you, know, you know, as Bruce said, the easiest way to make a golf course better is to get the mowing lines right, get the trees right, and create space in the corridor where you play golf. And it's, you know, that's the Royal Melbourne ironically, not ironically, not surprisingly, never made that mistake. Royal Melbourne never went and planted the wrong trees in the wrong place. Royal Melbourne, because Crockford and Russell understood what Mackenzie meant about space. So, because Mackenzie learnt that at, at the old course and he transferred, you know, the concept of the shot from one side of the fairway being much different from the shot from the other side of the fairway. You know, not much rough, wispy rough, short grass around the greens. He transferred that principle from the one he'd learned at the old course to Royal Melbourne and Augusta and Crystal Downs and you know, the Valley Club and all, all the great Cypress Point, all the great courses he built over there. You, know, we're all this, you, can, you can draw back everything, the way he thought about the game, you can draw it all back to what he learned at the old course. Which was, as he said, it was, you know, it's the only first class course in the world. And there's no second class course, and Cypress Point's a very bad third class. Which was a, you know, I mean, Mackenzie was a great self promoter, but, you know, that, that was a, you know, he was making a point there that was, you know, pretty well made, really. You know, you know I think it's the, you know, if it's not the best course in the, in the game, it's one of the best three or four. But it takes you a while to understand. I mean, the first time I played there, played the Open in 84, and I had no clue what I was looking at. You know, it's, it's a course you've got to learn and, and understand, which is why it's such a great golf course, because it takes time to learn it and understand it and, you know, understand all its moods. And Frank, Frank Nobile used to play the, the Dunhill Cup there every year. So Frank played it a lot. He said, you know, he said, I've seen that. He said, I've driver three with the first hole, which is unimaginable, but... 
you know, you, you know he, he's, he's seen that course in all its moods and how differently it can play when the wind's coming from one place versus another. And when, it, when it's, you're playing in October and it's cold and you've got your rain suit on versus when you're playing in the middle of July and it's warm and it's sunny and, you know, that's why it's such a great place. A few years back, you uh, formed a partnership with Mike DeVries uh, and Frank Pont and forming Clayton DeVries and Pont Golf Architects. What's your main aim with re- with regard to this partnership? Um, get good work and then you've got to build good golf. And if you get good work and build good golf, then you get more work. But it's to build the sort of golf we like, which is all, all the things we've spoken about tonight. But, you know, um, so where we've just picked up the job at Wallasey, which is a course I've never seen. I'm coming over in April to see that. And we, we, we're working for Ryan Nodes at the Addington, which is you know, one of the coolest courses in the world. Um, Seven Mile Beach is obviously phenomenal. So, you know, we're just about to, uh, we're just about to do a deal to do a 36 hole development in Vietnam, which is going to be fun. So, we, you know, we're getting some nice work. But, but, you know, really it's to, it's to work together and do what we love to do. And when we've got, you know, Lucas, Michelle and Urien van der Vaart, who's a Dutch kid who played the Challenge Tour in Europe for a while, who's 35, he and Urien are kind of, uh, sorry, he and Lucas have become pretty good friends. So they're both out here living in the house just for six months and working at Seven Mile Beach. So they're going to be hopefully an important part of the team of guys who are building our stuff. So, which is why Seven Mile Beach is such a cool job for them. You know, they're out there on the machines every day, learning and building stuff and pushing sand around and learning how the whole thing works. So it's, um, you know, it's a great experience for us to build the course, but it's also a great experience for them to to watch Mike. And, you know, Mike's a great teacher in terms of teaching him how to use the machines, which is, you know, so... Part of that is you know mentoring two young kids who are got a chance to turn into pretty talented architects in time. And just to your point about the Addington, obviously your colleagues in London and Europe, Ed Cartwright, Frank Pont, and Bill Longyear, are very active on social media with regard to the ongoing works at at the Addington, which obviously was a J.F. Abercrombie and H.S. Coke collaboration. I've not yet had the pleasure of playing there, although Ryan knows did slip me an invitation on Twitter during the week. It's very clear as you peel back the layers of atrophy and detritus that read the topographic relief in evidence on the site is, is absolutely mind-blowing. Can you speak to the site's characteristics and the direction that this restoration is taking and where you are with the process? Well, I was there in... Um, I'd played the course with Billy maybe in 2010, 11, 12 or 13, somewhere around that. Uh, and then I was there in November of 2019 for a couple of days before we really started. And it was, it was a lot of it was mowing lines and trees. You know, it had been kind of neglected for years, really, in terms of the tree management, which was, in a, in a way, it was a good thing. But, you know, it's about looking at the old photos, really. There's some great old black and white photos of the course. You know, the famous, uh, you know, the wild 12th hole and the great 13th hole, the part three again. 16, a really cool sort of short part five down through the valley and up and down up again. Um, we've got some great photos, so it's about really putting it back the way Abercrombie wanted it. 
but it's a wild, wild course. It's a rollicking ride, that one. It's kind of wild and not particularly difficult, which, which is proof again, if ever we needed, that, that great golf doesn't need to be difficult. But, you know, it's got some of the most unique holes in the game, really. So, certainly the 12th hole is, you know, it's, it's in the top 18 great unique holes in the, in the game. So it's kind of fun to put that one back the way it was 80 years ago. And, but it's a really cool project and, and a great place to play in. So if Ryan says, come and play, go play. In many ways, you've got to wonder at the fact that they didn't do very much to it. That probably puts you guys in a, in, a, in a better position in terms of maybe not having to do quite as much in terms of bringing it back to where it was. Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, like you know, it's happened at so many places, the greens have shrunk. So it'd be good to cut the greens back out to where they were. But you're right, you just got overgrown with trees and, you, you know, the, the, it lost what, you know, Bruce Hatton was talking about, you know, you know, lost its space. So we're just creating more space for golf and it's, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a truly, and there was, and there was, you know, there's so much great golf around London. It's, it's you know, Woking and, you know, the Berkshire and Swinley Forest and the two courses at Sangdale and, you know, Warpleston and West Hill. I mean, there's just, you know, Walton Heath, it just goes on forever. Uh, the rural Ashdown Forest, you know, the, the um, Royal Wellington and Newmarket. There's, there's so much cool golf in that part of the world. It's, it's incredible, really. So the Addington's a, you know, a big part of that group of courses that, that, that is such an amazing legacy of the golf that got built at the start of the last century. As uh, people may know, my own home course of Royal Dublin has appointed CDP as consulting architects to review the bunkering on our Lynx course and the UNESCO biosphere in the heart of Dublin Bay. With regard to that project, if you can speak to it, uh, what methodology did you use in preparing the study? Well, Frank did it. In fairness, I was over there again in November 19 for a couple of days. And I, you know, I had some ideas, but largely they're Frank's ideas. Um, and I'm back. We've got a meeting with the members, I think, on April the 6th, right? I think. Uh, news to me, but uh, uh, that's good to hear. Yeah, well, perhaps I shouldn't have announced that. Anyway, uh, that's right. But um. I can I can take that out, no problem. Yeah, that's all right. But um, I'm back there in, in early April, so I'm looking forward to seeing it again. And obviously, I played that course in a bunch of Irish Opens, and you know it's not kind of major stuff, but but you know again, it's just how do we make this? How, how do we tweak this course to make it a little more interesting and a little better? And you know, it's a it's a terrific place. You know, it wasn't wasn't as good as Port Marnock, but it was a terrific golf course, great fun to play. And I remember playing. In that back nine into the wind, I played late one Saturday and 16 was a driving an eight iron. Can you imagine that? That's how strong the wind was. It was, you know, that was a drivable par four, right? Well, I guess you back know, then that a, would have been two, probably 270 yards, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it was a driver eight iron. It was a crazy wind. Came up late, but it was a, but, but that run of holes back in from the 11th on, right? You know, 11 back in was a, that was a long run of holes into the wind if you got it into the wind. Yeah, you play nine. Obviously, nine is kind of usually crosswind, and then ten is down yeah, the down, yeah. down the Coming down the barrel in, yeah. of a of a of a of an index one. So uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. no, we we, yeah. we look forward to uh, to to hearing what you have yourself, Frank, have to say in April for sure. Yeah, yeah. that'll uh, be fun to get back to take a look at it. Last last couple of questions, Mike, and thanks thanks again for for sticking with it. 
During no various COVID lockdowns in Australia, yourself and Jeff Ogilvy organised a regular match amongst the top pros and amateurs in Victoria, obviously providing much-needed competitive golf to the participants when it was scarce on the ground. This venture would ultimately lead to the inaugural Sandbelt Invitational held on consecutive days at Royal Melbourne, Kingston Heath, Yarra Yarra and Peninsula Kingswood. You were installed as tournament director and staff writer for the event. How'd it go? I was... I think people liked it. It was pretty good. You know, it was as I. It was four. It was really four one-day tournaments. Really, ro- rolled into a four-round tournament. But so it was interesting to go to a different course every day. It was less onerous for the clubs to. You know, it was much less. It was much easier for them to, rather than running the, you know, regular seventy-two-hole tournament on one course, to, just to have one day was made it much less of an imposition for them. The idea of Jess Foundation is to really put the best young kids in the in, in the state in Victoria together with the best pros. And, you know, they learn from, well, they learn from each other, really, but mostly it's the older, older guys talking to the young kids about, you know, life on the tour and what they can do to play better and just, or just you know, playing with good players. So... We had um, we had thirty five pros, I think. I kept inviting you know, like Jeff, stop inviting these kids to play. So you know, I think we finished up with thirty. It was, it was supposed to be thirty, but we finished up with thirty four pros. Sue O played you know, from the LPJ tour. So we had you know a few women pros and you know, maybe twenty three men and twenty five men and six or seven or eight women, and the same number of amateurs really. So it was. So it was a kind of a mixed up field of, you know, we had a 13 year old girl called Amelia Harris, who I'd never heard of. It was, she was part of, she's a member at Yarra Yarra, so that's how she got in the tournament. And she shot 86 at Royal Melbourne the first day. Which doesn't sound great, but Royal Melbourne was set up like the Australian Open for the men Sunday at the Australian Open for men. It was hard, fast greens and it was windy and it was, then she shot, 80, no, she shot 82 at, 80, no, she shot 86 at Kingston Heath the first day. Then shot 82 at Royal Melbourne. Then shot... No, I watched her play a bit. She was playing with someone I was watching and I thought, this kid's pretty good. Then she shot 74 at Yarra Yarra and 76 at Peninsula. A 13-year-old kid, I mean, she's like... Um, I wouldn't say she's amazingly good, but she might be amazingly good. She's like tremendous player. So, and a, a great kid and she was... She played with Peter Fowler one day and sat in with him after the round and spoke to him for an hour about, you know, what do you do when you get mad and how, how do you control your temper? And, you know, and Chuck wasn't exactly the best guy to ask that question. But, um, you know, that's really the idea of the tournament is to stick a 13-year-old girl who's got a chance to be a good player with some of the best pros in the country. And they play together and she learns from just watching him and hanging around him and, Talking to us about playing golf, and you know, she 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 played with with, with a, it started off as a thing called the game, which is you know usually on Mondays the best players in town just get together and play, and it's been you know the the, the Sandbell Invitational was really what came out of these eighteen whole things called the game that we play. And Jeff plays nearly every week, and you know. Any of the best pros are in town, play with the best kids, and it's just about playing together. 
So it's um, so the Sandbell Invitational is going to we'll do it again this year, and it's going to be hopefully a little bigger and better, and same courses again, I think, and uh, get get some more prize money. And you know, Jeff's going to Augusta, so he can impose on his mates to you know if we can get Mark Leishman or Cam Smith or a couple of those guys to play, and I think Hannah Green's going to play next year. So you know if we can get the field a little better and. It'll turn into a pretty good tournament, I think. Sounds like the lads in the Fire Pit Collective, Matt, Janetta, and uh, Alan, and the lads are interested in coming down and covering that as well in a bit yeah. more detail. Well, I think uh, Shipnock was going to come down this year, except that he was doing something, and then it was, I think it was three day quarantine, which yeah, it made it too tight. Uh, so he's. um. I think he's going to come down this year, which would be great. So, you know, it's good. You know, it's got a lot, a, a decent amount of interest around the world. And just because I think it's a good concept. You know, it's an interesting, it's a concept and, and it's on four tremendous golf courses. So, it's, you know, it's good for the kids to be, have to adapt every day and play a different golf course every day. And so that, you know, the younger kids, you know, some of them shot, you know, didn't shoot great scores, but, um, they love playing with the pros and the, and the pros like playing with them and it's a, it's a cool week. You never know, given Rory's historical comments about loving Kingston Heat, maybe he'll uh, he'll filter down at some point. If you're yeah, listening, well, Rory, I'm sure we'd love yeah. to see you down there. Yeah, well, we, we've promised we're never going to pay any, any appearance money. So if you want to come down, Rory, you're welcome to come down. And we'll find your room to stay somewhere. But And if you play well, the prize money will cover you the price of your airfare. <laughs> last three questions Mike again just wondering if you could let us know what your I know the last time I heard you just uh, answer this question we'll give you the top six courses in the world where are they and, and why have you chosen them oh wow that's, that's a, the impossible question um, the question Bill Core never answers because he's far too diplomatic um, the six courses that, let me give you the six courses I'd play if I had a chance to play um, the old course, uh, Moorfontaine, National Golf Links, Royal Melbourne, Sand Hills, and yeah, yeah, Woking. I love playing at Woking. You know, it's not one of the best courses in the world, but I love playing there. But yeah, it's the impossible question to answer that one. You know, I mean, Pine Valley's amazing, Marion's amazing, Shinnecock's amazing. I mean, there were so many. There are so many great golf courses. Well, there aren't so great's an overused word. There are, I mean, Chris, I mean, Crystal Downs is an amazing golf course in Michigan, where, where Mike's a member, Mike DeVries. So, you know, but I always love playing off Fontaine. Um, Royal Melbourne's still special after almost fifty years since I first played there. Fifty years since I first went there this year, that World Cup in nineteen seventy-two. In fact, Jimmy Kinsella probably played for Ireland in that. Seventy-two. You can look it up. Could have yeah. Done. Who would he play with? Christ, Probably Christy, Christy Senior, I'd say. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. <clears throat> but you know, Royal Melbourne's. I always love playing golf there. It's amazing. It's an amazing place. But you know the and Sandhills for the you know being the probably the best modern golf course. I guess you know nineteen ninety two. I can't like they built it, but you know it's the middle of nowhere, and you know it's a course that you know very few people will see, but it's. You know, it's, it's, if, if, you're, if anyone's ever lucky enough to get a chance to go there, don't miss it. 
talking to you just there's so many follow-up questions you don't uh, you, you huh. just leave you just leave questions <laughs> hanging in the air with regard yeah. to royal melbourne and your 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 point yeah. earlier on about about them just getting it right how do you characterize that getting it right bit i mean the consistency over time uh, is it about being comfortable in their own skin and having an identity or or, or, or how, how do you view that well you know they got it right because they built a great golf course to start with and, and then they looked after it and they looked after it because they revered crockford who ran it and the green committee knew better than to in- interfere with what he was doing largely so although in fairness they did long after mckenzie went they built a uh, Ivor witten who was a strain open champion rebuilt the seventh hole well build a new seventh hole in a completely different place. So they did change it a bit. And the seventh's a great part three. Um, but they just, you know, they've never messed too much with it. They've never messed with the mowing lines. They've always been comfortable in their own skin of, you know, in terms of never falling for the trick of narrowing the fairways, which are pretty wide. And the defence has always been, I mean, I think at times, you know, not too hard, but certainly too fast. I mean, the, the greens have gotten at times, you know, crazy fast. But um, it's such a cool place to play and great fun. And, but it's, you know, it shows what a, you know, what brilliant men built that place. And it's still, you know, there have been some courses that have gotten close to it in Australia in terms of, you know, um, being as good as it, but nothing's ever really got there. You, you, know, you know, that's the challenge at Seven Mile Beach is to try and build a course that's even in, in the same league as Royal Melbourne, really. You know, that's kind of our aim, really, is to build a course that you know, can even be mentioned in the same breath as Royal Melbourne. Well, it looks like there's the raw material there, anyway, in terms of topography and and views yeah, and whatever else yeah 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 there is there's space and there's sand and the, and there's change of direction and there's you know there's 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 a every hole's pretty much got a view of the water so it's um but you can mess that up you can build holes that aren't particularly interesting so the trick is to you know make every shot as interesting as you can make it and, and as exhilarating to to play as you can make it I think there are going to be a bunch of really exhilarating shots out there, which is what Royal Melbourne is. You know, it's what, in, in a different way, what the old course is. You know, it's not as spectacular, but it's it's got spectacular holes. And, and there's such interesting shots to play. You know, and that's ultimately at the heart of making golf, um, making a golf course that people want to come back to and play day after day and year after year is, is that, the shots are interesting, both exhilarating and interesting. And that's why you know, I can go back to Royal Melbourne and play it 50 years after I first went there and it's still kind of, it's, a, it's still a thrill to play it. And, and they're, they're rare places, really rare. Because, yes. for, you know, familiarity always breeds contempt in the end when it comes to golf course, nearly always. You know, you know, if you, if you play a course off enough for long enough, you'll you'll kind of take it a bit for granted. But 
It's, it's only the super special places that you don't ever take for granted. I've had a similar love affair to a certain degree over the years with Port Murnock. My Royal Dublin fellow members might, uh, some of them might think differently, but it's it's like an onion. And the more you yeah. play it and you don't kind of get it, and then the more you play it, the more you get it. And the more you play it, the more it actually reveals itself. And as as I've heard you say before, you know, different weather conditions provide different strategic challenges. And um I've just have fallen madly in love with the place and a place yeah. that's there in front of you and it looks simple and, but it's so nuanced and just very, very strategic and actually where you think you should be, you probably don't want to be. Yeah. No, it's a, the, the first Irish Open I played there in 1982. I think there was Morris Brembridge shot 71, maybe it was 171, 173 and 274s. That was a windy day. That was a brutal day. I shot 80. 80, 70. I made the cut. I actually played that's, right that's the, the year. That's the year John O'Leary won, yeah? That was the year John O'Leary won. It was exactly it. Was the, it was the year John O'Leary won. Greg Norman, Greg shot 79 the first day. So I didn't, I didn't feel so bad. I shot 80, Greg shot 79. Well, that's not too bad. But um, that was a, yeah, I loved that 14th hole. That was a great little short par four up the hill there. And, um. You know, 15 was that crazy par three. And I saw David Jones hit a, remember big David Jones, Northern Ireland yeah. from Bangor? Yeah. Jones, he had these big fat grips on his ping irons and he was howling off the right. You, know, you could barely play that. You know, if you hit it out right of the green, it was it would start hooking. And even if it landed on the right side of the green, it was it was moving so far, so far and so hard to the left, it would run off the left of the green. Yeah. And I can still see it. Jones, he hit this boring hard cut with a three iron that never moved. This went straight through the wind to about 15 feet. It was just like, well, it was an amazing shot. Mm. So, it's, um, yeah, I, I really loved playing there. I, I, and it was a great tournament there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was always a great tournament at Royal Dublin or Port Marnock, but it was, a, it was a brilliant tournament venue for golf. And it was a pity they ever moved it from there, really, I think. But I guess just look, second last question, which is basically going back to the revered Claude Crockford, who was the head greenkeeper in Royal Melbourne for nearly 45 yeah. or 50 years. He published a book, which for the life of me, I can't remember the name of just for the moment. Any idea where one might uh, purchase that? I know there was only a thousand copies. I know they're kind of thin on the ground, but can you give me a, a lead on where I might go? Um, uh, they're hard to get. No, I don't really know. Are there any on you on eBay or anything? Or? I think I think Michael Wolf has one up on uh, on 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 uh, a books um, for about five hundred dollars. So I might uh, I might send him a copy of this podcast and and, and, a, and a pleading letter. <laughs> I know I've got a copy, but um, it's it's Roger Mackay's copy. Roger was a great friend of mine, who tremendous player, who sadly died. He died on the Sunday night of the two thousand. And to US Open, I walked off the last green. I watched Huggy and I watched Tiger play the last round, and I walked off the last green. And Wayne Grady said, "Roger died today." It's like what? I, mean, I knew he had been sick, but you know, Roger. You know, we'd grown up playing golf together. We were great friends, and I was around. You know, every time I go to Perth, I, I always stay at, you know, with his wife. At you know, he's got a beautiful house there, and well, he had a beautiful house there. And there was a copy of Crockwood's book there, and I said, "Roswood." Roger, mind if I took this book? She said, no, well, no one no one here is ever going to read it. So I've got Roger's copy, but I know they're hard to get. 
They're really hard to get. In fact, I know someone who does have one. A guy called Brendan Maloney, who was a golf writer for The Age. He got about 20 copies of them and had them signed. So let me ask Brendan if he wants to give up one. But very kind. You're very kind. Listen, one, one last question. And I guess leading people, if they're, if they're still with us, and hopefully they are, and thank you for staying. I guess it, was, it would be remiss of me to not mention, potentially, Eric, to ask you a question with regard to recommendation of two books for our listeners. One should be a book on golf architecture. And the second one should just be a book on golf unrelated to course architecture for, for those hardy souls that have battled through. Um, golf course architecture. Uh, well, I love the spirit of St. Andrews. It's kind of a pretty predictable answer, but that's a great one. Um, the Anatomy of a Golf Course by Doak or Grounds for Golf by Jeff Shackelford. Both kind of modern day textbooks on what good golf, what makes golf courses interesting and good. So uh, I would go for one of those three probably to start with, but there, but there are lots of them. You know, if you go down the rabbit hole of golf course architecture books, there are sort of 15 or 20 that you might want to read. Uh, one of my favourite books is The Eternal Summer by Kurt Sampson, which is this, who's a tremendous American writer. He, he wrote the book on Hogan, called Hogan. Um, the Eternal Summer is the story of 1960, the summer of 1960, largely around the great US Open at Cherry Hills where Nicholas was the amateur, 20-year-old amateur, Palmer, who shot 65 to win, and Hogan, who was who hit 34, 34 greens in a row on the last day after hitting 18 greens in a row the day before. So um, if there was one tournament that you could be transported back in time to watch, that would be it for me. Hogan and Palmer and Nicholas at Cherry Hills in 1960. So Samson wrote a great book on that summer, which included um, Arnold going to St Andrews and losing to Kel Nagel by a shot at, at St Andrews in the the Centenary Open or the 100th Open. No, the Centenary Open, right? Yeah, 18, 19, 1960, yeah. So it was, so it was the Centenary Open. Um that's a tremendous book on the history of golf in that time. But it, it, it speaks a lot about that great open at Cherry Hills. So, and, and you can get that on any one of those bookstores for online for 20 bucks to $25. Tremendous. It's a, it's a great book, I think. Sounds good. Thank yeah. you, Mike Clayton. Much appreciate Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks for making it this far. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed putting it together for you. Once again, many thanks to Mike Clayton for joining us on this episode and to both Rod Murray and Wallace Long for their recent interest, input and advice on what is the Firm and Fast Call podcast. Join us next time for a farther journey down the rabbit holes of golf. In the meantime, stay safe and happy golfing. <laughs>